right, well, we are coming to the end of our Attributes of God class. We have this week, and we have next week, and then we're done. That's not to say that we've covered everything there is to say about the attributes of God, or that we've even covered all of the attributes. That is just to say we're, we're out of time. Today, we're going to be covering the issue of providence. And just like with the Trinity, I'm probably not going to get to everything you're thinking of when we think of providence. Uh, like the issue of free will. When we talk about providence, people ask, well, what about free will? We don't have time to get there today. We're going to try to get to the issue of evil and how do we understand evil within the context of God's providence. That's at the end. So I hope we make it. What is providence? When we talk about providence, what are we talking about? Biblical doctrine gives us a, a pretty good definition. Divine providence is God's preserving his creation operating in every event in the world, and directing the things in the universe to his appointed end for them. That definition provides three parts to providence. Notice there's three parts here. God's preserving, his operating in, and his directing of. All three of these refer to providence. They're all talking about some aspect of providence. Now, theologians give these three fancy names. The first one they call preservation, divine concurrence, and divine government. So we give really fancy names for those three ideas. Preservation is God upholds his universe. He holds everything together. He keeps it functioning. Divine concurrence is that God works in and through his creation to accomplish his means. And divine government says that God governs over all of creation to bring about his desired end, to bring about his will. Even in those basic definitions that I just gave you, you should realize that these three overlap significantly. When you talk about preservation, you're going to be talking about concurrence. When you talk about concurrence, you're going to talk about preservation. When you talk about divine concurrence, that God works through creation to bring about his desired end, the bringing about of the desired end is talking about government. So there's significant overlap between these three. So today, as we go through Bible verses and we look at these three parts, it's going to sound like I'm repeating myself, because in some sense I am. There is significant overlap between these. But let's just talk about providence in general. When we talk about providence, we we have two main categories of divine providence. The first is general providence. General providence refers to God's control over the entire universe. I always think of this like macroeconomics. Macro refers to large scale. Macroeconomics refers to the economics of the entire nation, of large scale economies. General providence refers to God's control over the entire universe on on a big picture. God controls the movement of galaxies. He controls the formation of stars and of planets. He controls uh, if the universe is going to expand or shrink. He controls those big things. Specific providence refers to God's control over the details of the universe. So if I go back to my economics analogy, it's not macroeconomics, now it's micro. It's dealing with the individual level. Uh, Specific providence includes things like history. All of history, the story of mankind, is under the providence of God. And that's, again, not just the larger, bigger picture story of history. That goes down to the very details of life. 
and especially the details of the life of the elect, the life of those who God has chosen. Every event, every activity in their life, every detail of their life is determined and controlled and planned by God to bring about his ultimate goal. But when you talk about divine providence and you talk about God being in control, there are people who disagree. There are people who say that God is not in control. Anybody name a couple of groups that might say that? Open theist. God doesn't know what's going to happen. It's all kind of up in the air, and he's just figuring it out as he goes along. Anybody else? Atheist. Arminians. Molinist. There's another group called deist. Deism. Anybody heard of that? Say Benjamin Franklin was a deist. I think he changed his views by the end of his life, but that's a different story. What does deism teach? Anybody? Good, yeah. God put it in action and then just kind of left it. God is like a watchmaker. His only interaction is when he creates the watch. He makes the watch. The watch is designed to function on its own. It has the internal mechanisms to function and continuing function without the watchmaker's involvement. So once he makes it and turns it loose, he never has to go back and deal with it again. And the Dia says God is like a watchmaker. And he has made the universe to function on its own, and he's given it the internal mechanisms and principles by which the universe is to function. And now that he's made it, and now that it has those internal mechanisms, God no longer has to be involved in it. And everything else just kind of happens as a process. They call those principles, those processes, laws of nature. Have you heard of those? And we have to deal with laws of nature if we're going to talk about divine providence because we need to understand what they are not. I'm going to tell you what they're not, and then I'm going to tell you what they are. Laws of nature are not inviolate rules or laws. That is to say, laws of nature are not always followed. Um, since the Enlightenment period, the laws of nature have been used to deny miracles. And here's how they do it. The ocean is not going to split in two, and water is not going to wall up on both sides. We know that because we see how water behaves, we know how water acts, and we know water doesn't do that. It never does that, and therefore it didn't do that then. So the Exodus story must not be true. Or, once someone dies, they do not come back to life. The laws of nature say that is not possible. Once death officially occurs, it's over. Ergo, the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. See how they've done this? The laws of nature supersede what God has said because they view them as being inviolable. You cannot violate these laws. That is to say, they view these as rules for God to follow. The laws of nature are not rules that God needs to follow. If God is the creator and he made the rules, who says he has to act according to those rules because they're just rules for his creation and how the creation functions? They're not moral law. God can suspend or do away with the laws of nature at his discretion. The law of gravity does not have to apply at all times. God can supersede that. 
And if you need proof of that, just look in the Bible. Elijah was taken up into the air. Jesus was taken into the air. They don't have wings. They're not birds. Law of gravity didn't apply. Jesus walked through walls. All those laws that would prevent us from doing so didn't apply. God can supersede his own laws of nature. So, that's what they're not. What are they? I've kind of already hinted at this. The laws of nature are principles by which the universe seems to operate. That is to say, these are laws that we have looked at the universe and we have said, this is how the universe seems to function in most cases. 99 times out of 100, when we look at the universe, this is what it's going to be doing. They are the normal ways that God upholds his universe. They are the normal ways that God allows creation to function. And these are the normal means by which God brings about a desired effect or effects. Let me give you an example, and we'll use this example a couple times throughout the class this morning. Rain. God brings rain on the just and the unjust. How does God do it? Does he get out a little pitcher and pour some water on top of you? How does, he, how does he bring rain? He brings rain through the natural processes of the earth that he has already created. He takes the sun and he heats up water. The water then turns to water vapor. He then causes the vapor to rise into the sky. It gets into the atmosphere. He causes it to cool. Once it's in the atmosphere, it condenses into a cloud. He gathers enough moisture there until the wind pushes that cloud to where he wants it to go, and then he uses gravity to pull the water back down onto the place where he wants it to rain. Now, that is a very unscientific explanation for where rain comes from, but you get the point. It wasn't some supernatural event that caused the rain, but it was God working behind using multiple principles to create a simple effect, i.e., it's raining outside. So that's how the laws of nature deal with the idea of divine providence. Let's talk about the first category of providence. The issue of preservation. Anybody remember what we talked about for the last two weeks? The Trinity. The Trinity is necessary if you want to understand the biblical basis of providence and preservation. Because it is the triune God that preserves the universe. It is the triune God that preserves his creation. The Trinity is necessary if you want to understand preservation. Because God the Father preserves his creation in the same way that he created. How did he create? He created through the Son. And he preserves through his Son. You have to have the Trinity if you want to understand the biblical basis of preservation. So what are we talking about when we talk about God preserving or upholding his universe. Biblical doctrine, again, provides a definition. The triune God's ever-active work through God the Son in maintaining the things he created with all the characteristics and dynamics he gave them. Notice it's an ever-active work. Creation was a one-time event. It happened over six days, and God is done. Preservation is continually ongoing. He is always preserving his creation. He is always maintaining the things that he has created. 
And he's maintaining those things with the same characteristics and dynamics with which he created them. Every person in this room has specific attributes that are unique to you. Let's just start with physical attributes. Those attributes and characteristics remain the same to some degree. Which is why every week when you walk in, we can identify who you are. Because those attributes remain the same. Your bone structure and your face doesn't morph and meld and change with the passing of the years in a significant way to where you're no longer recognizable, to where those attributes no longer exist. You will never be confused with an animal because the attributes that make you distinct as a human being will never start to meld and change into the attributes of an animal. You have been given specific attributes And those attributes God maintains and preserves throughout all of creation. He does the same thing with the processes of the creative world. Uh, Hebrews 1, verse 3. And he, speaking of the Son, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds, you can say he sustains everything by his power. If it still exists, it exists because he is sustaining it. But this word for upholds, that's in yellow. If you really want to get an idea of the word, we need to look at how else it's used. Because it's instructive when we think about providence and God's preservation. This same word is used in Math, uh, not Matthew, Luke 5.18. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. Now the story here isn't what's relevant. But what's relevant here is the word is translated as carrying. You have a group of men who go over and pick up this guy, take control of him, and move him from one spot to the next. Same word is also used in John 2. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. He's speaking of water that had been turned into wine. And his command was, go over there intentionally scoop up some wine, control that wine so it doesn't spill all over the place, and carry it to the head waiter. 2 Timothy 4, verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Go over there, find the books, the parchments, and the cloak. Intentionally pick them up, control them, and carry them to the right location. The word that's used in Hebrews 1.3 doesn't just mean to sustain. It has the idea of active, purposeful control over what is being carried. Active, purposeful control. When you go back to Hebrews 1.3 and you apply this, the Son is continually carrying along, purposefully controlling, carrying along the creation. Not from one physical location to the next, but from one moment to the next. From one generation, from one century to the next. 2 Peter 3, verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. The universe is being kept, it's being preserved, it's reserved, it's set aside and protected by God for a specific purpose. All the characteristics and the attributes and the principles that God used to create it and God set in motion when he created, 
all of those are being preserved and energized by God. Colossians 1, verse 17. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. First note, all things. Every created thing, every part of creation, everything that He created, verse 16 of Colossians 1 speaks of Jesus as the Creator. He created them, and He carries their existence. He sustains their existence. It says he holds them together. If Jesus were to withdraw his power that is holding you together, you and I would vaporize. You are held together by the power of God. The chair you're sitting in is held together by the power of God. If he he removed that power, you would be on the floor. Everything has God working through it to preserve it, energizing it to perform whatever function it's performing. You and I owe our very existence, not only to God's creative work, but you owe your existence to his preserving work, that he preserves your life. Nehemiah 9, verse 6, You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. Notice he says, you give life to all of them. Certainly referring to the one time at creation where he gave life. But the Hebrew verb here refers to continual giving. All creatures are given life by God and continually supplied life. Constantly receiving life from God. You could translate, you preserve all of them. Acts 17, 28, for in him we live and move and exist. All of your living, all of your moving, all of your existence is bound up in God's preserving work. Sustaining you and keeping you. Job 34, 14, he says, if he should determine to do so, If he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish and man would return to the dust. If God were to remove his spirit from you, you would die. He says if he removes his breath. Remember in Genesis 2, how did God animate the mud? What do you do? I hear hear something. He breathed into it. Job says if he, if he removes that breath, you're done. You return back to the dust. Paul says you should always be giving thanks because every breath you take is borrowed air. He's giving you the ability to breathe and he's supplying the air for you to breathe. Psalm 104.29, you hide your face and they are dismayed. You take away their spirit, they expire, and they return to their dust. God removes your ability to continue living. He withdraws his spirit, he withdraws that breath, and you go right back to where you started. Right back to dust. God created everything with these unique properties. Unique to that individual creation, whatever it is. 
And through preservation, he maintains those properties. Whether we're talking about a physical person or a physical object, or we're talking about a process that occurs in creation. He also maintains the properties of inanimate objects. They don't change in their properties. That is to say, water will always behave as water. And that's good news, isn't it? Because water, as we understand it, always flows downhill. And because that's the way water always behaves, you know if you are in a floodplain or not. But if water ceases to perform its duties or behave in that way, it doesn't matter if you live on top of the hill. You're still in a floodplain. Wood never behaves like water. Thank goodness. You're sitting at your kitchen table eating dinner. Your table's not going to liquefy and run out the front door. It maintains the properties that God has given to it. God is preserving those properties. Water never behaves like wood. The properties God gave to water and to wood are unique to those two objects, and they always maintain those properties because God preserves them. It's only when one of those objects is acted upon by something else in creation that its properties change, i.e., you put water in the freezer, turns to ice. You put a match that's lit under a piece of wood, it'll burn, turn to ash. Otherwise, it maintains its properties. We also need to understand that preservation, we're not talking about a form of creation. God is not creating still to preserve his creation. God finished all of his creation. He's done creating. He doesn't have to create anything more. He doesn't have to create new structures to continue his, um, his creation. He upholds the structures he already created. We're all breathing air right now. We're all enjoying the cool air from the air conditioning, right? And we're consuming oxygen and we're pushing out carbon dioxide. God doesn't have to make new atoms and molecules for you to be able to breathe. He has systems set in place to take carbon dioxide and turn it back into oxygen or separate it. He doesn't have to create something new. He can preserve and use what's already been created to continue it. This preservation is really helpful because it maintains order and predictability in the universe. Whatever God created, he sustains. And it will continue to function just as God designed it to function. It will behave predictably and consistently. It doesn't atrophy, break down, or diminish. Um, think about time. Have you ever heard of time diminishing, slowing down, atrophying? It doesn't happen. Time remains consistent. It's always functioning just as God intended it because he is preserving it. It's by his power that it continues. The best example I can think of to demonstrate preservation is the children of Israel in the wilderness. Remember when they were about 20 years in, they all stopped by at Walmart to get some new clothes? Okay. Made a couple of you smile. No, they didn't, did they? 
There was no Walmart. There was no Kohl's. They didn't have Amazon. So what'd they do for clothes? God preserved the clothes that they already had. And he took those clothes and he made them last for 40 years so that they could function properly and continue to do that function for 40 years in the wilderness. It's a microcosm of what he does in the entire universe that he's been doing for seven to 10,000 years since he created it. And because God preserves the universe and it maintains order and predictability, you can have confidence in what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't think any of you woke up this morning questioning whether or not you would have sunlight today or whether the wind would blow or whether water would still evaporate or whether the rain would still fall or if gravity would still pull. I don't think anyone in this room started woke up this morning questioning whether electrons, protons, and neutrons would function properly in an atom. You realize if atoms stop doing what they do, we're, we're all in trouble, right? And because all of these things are consistent, we can now engage in scientific study. All of the advancements, all the things that you enjoy that come out of science, like medical science and things like this building, are the result of God's preserving his creation and maintaining it in a constant, predictable way. Science functions by being able to take something that is known, a known function in the universe, and comparing it to an unknown function. But if both of them are unknown, you can't use it. It doesn't work. Imagine how hard science would be, or how hard your life would be, if the universe wasn't predictable. Imagine if fire stopped burning and it started freezing instead. Remember snowpocalypse? And you're hover, huddled around your little fire in the fireplace? And you're like, oh, this is wonderful. And then a few minutes later, the fire turns icy cold. Would make life a little harder, wouldn't it? Or various cells of your body just changed function on their own. The white cells became red cells. The red cells started functioning like T cells, and I don't know all the rest of the cells, but they just decided to switch function randomly. Not once, but continually, just changing their functions. Or imagine if the pull of gravity just changed randomly. Some days it's really strong, and some days you're kind of floating along. And you just hope the days that you're floating along, when it changes back to being strong, it does so gradually. Only one person got that one. I just think of, you know, the little cartoon character. He's up in the air and he just slams to the ground. Yeah, okay. I'll move on. Imagine if the speed of light changed. You're used to walking into a room, flipping the switch, and there's light everywhere. But if light slowed down, like drastically slowed down, you'd flip the switch and you'd have to wait a few minutes before you saw the light. Or you'd flip the switch and you'd walk to the other side of the room and you'd beat the light to the other side of the room. That'd really mess you up, wouldn't it? Imagine if time slowed down and sped up on its own. Now some of you are thinking, well, that would be helpful. But I'm not talking about you being able to control when it slows down and speeds up. It just does it randomly. All of these things remain constant because God is preserving them. You don't have these problems because God is preserving the universe in a constant and predictable way. 
and it makes your life possible. It makes scientific study possible. That's divine preservation. Divine concurrence. Really fancy name. Here's biblical doctrine's definition. His operation with created things, causing them, whether acting directly or ordaining them through secondary causes, through their properties to act. Can you tell that was written by seminary professors? Um, I like Wayne Grudem's definition. It's a lot easier to read. God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. That'll make a lot more sense in a minute. I think Wayne Grudem's section on this is really good. I'm going to lean pretty heavily on him here. He's got really good material in providence. I can't say that about everything in Wayne Grudem, but this one was pretty good. God cooperates with created things in every action. That is to say, in every action that occurs in the world, in the universe, whether it's an action of a person or it's an action of any other part of creation, the volcano erupting, an earthquake, a bird flying, whatever the action is, God is working in that thing or person to make that action happen. And he is directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act the way they're acting. Ephesians 1, verse 11, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his own will. The verb here, to work, who works, refers to work that is necessary to bring about something through the use of an ability. God uses his power and his ability, and he uses that to work through his creation to produce his desired result. What is the desired result? the counsel of his will, whatever he desires. And what does he work through? Does he work through some things? Does he work through only those things which we determine that are good? All things. Everything. God works through all of it. 1 Corinthians 12, 6, there are a variety of gifts, but the same God who works all things in all persons. God works through all things. And here he's referring specifically to spiritual gifts. God uses spiritual gifts in each person to produce results that he wants. He enables and empowers you to utilize those gifts to accomplish his will. Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Nobody can stop him. He does whatever he wants. What are some of those things that he does? What are some of those things that he pleases to do? Very next verse. Psalm 135, verse 7. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. We were talking about rain earlier. Vapor rising. Who causes it? God. Lightning, who causes it? God. Psalm 148, verse 8. Fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind. What are they doing? Fulfilling his word. Doing exactly as he commanded them to do. Job echoes the same thought. Job 37, verse 6. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and to the downpour and the rain, be strong. 
It rains because God commands it. It rains because God works through his creation to make it rain right where he wants it to rain. And God not only tells it when to rain, it tell, he tells it how much to rain. You're either going to get a drizzle or a torrential downpour because you're in South Texas and that's the way it works. Job 37 verse 10, from the breath of God, ice is made and the expanse of the waters is frozen. It's not saying that God is like the magical Disney character where they breathe on stuff and it turns to ice. It's saying by, by God's command, ice is formed. That God is working through his creation, through those processes to form ice. Job 37 verse 11, the very next verse. Also with moisture he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning. I don't know if you were outside yesterday. Do you see all those dark, thick clouds? He's loading them up. Job 37, very next two verses, 12 and 13. It changes direction, turning around by his guidance, that it may do whatever he commands, commands it on the face of the inhabited earth, whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. All the natural functions that you see in the world, from rain and snow, all that stuff are all caused and commanded by God to occur. Matthew 5, verse 45, For he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You have sun this morning because God caused it to happen. Rain fell on the city of San Antonio and Bernie over the last few days because God caused it to happen. There are righteous and there are unrighteous people in this area. And all are beneficiaries of God's concurrence and his providence. Psalm 104.14, He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of a man so that he may bring forth food from the earth. If you're a rancher and your cattle are fat and happy, it's because God has caused that vegetation to grow. And he's done so so he can feed the cattle. God controls vegetation. He causes it to grow. He also causes the sun to rise. We kind of saw this in a, minute, a minute ago, Job 38. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? That's God speaking, by the way, asking Job that. The implication is God does that. He causes the planets to orbit the sun. He commands them to. He causes the earth to spin on its axis. He not only commands and decrees it, but he enables and empowers it. He's involved in caring for each of the animals. Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And someone will say, well, look, you, you crazy fundamentalist, you can't take that literally. Jesus didn't actually mean that he feeds all the birds. Well, if that's not what Jesus meant. Then how is that verse any comfort to you? That verse is supposed to comfort you because if God would feed the little bird, then he'll feed you too. But if you turn around and say God doesn't actually feed the birds, that Jesus is just using an analogy, then it provides no comfort. His whole point is you shouldn't worry about it. If it doesn't say that God feeds the birds, then the verse provides no comfort. It does nothing to relieve anxiety. All creatures, all animals depend upon God. Even the animals in the sea. Psalm 104, 
There is the sea, great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals both small and great. Whether you're talking about the little plankton or the really big whale that eats the plankton. Two verses later. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. All the animals look to God for, for their food and for their sustenance. The only creature on the earth who thinks they can provide for themselves is the human being. Psalm 104. You give to them. They gather it up. You open your hand. They are satisfied with your good. You hide your face. They are dismayed. You take away their spirit. They expire and return to the dust. God controls the weather. He feeds the animals. He controls even events that we think are random. He controls events that we would say, well, that's just chance. In the Old Testament, they would use um, the casting of lots to make decisions. Uh, the, the best analogy to a casting of a lot I can think of is rolling dice. If you roll dice, can you determine what numbers you're going to get? Same thing with the casting of lots. They couldn't determine what the end would be. Numbers uh, 26, talking about the division of the land. And he says, according to the selection by lot, their inheritance shall be divided. Was God just leaving it up to chance on which tribes received what part of the inheritance? He had a specific section selected for each tribe, and he determined and set that out for them by casting of lots. And he controlled the outcome. Let's put it in modern-day parlance. You take the dice, you put them in your hand. You shake the dice, you throw them on the table. How many different variables are involved in making sure those dice, if you're rolling two dice, you get a number 12, two sixes. How many different variables would there have to you would you have to be able to control to get the right outcome? From the shape of your hand to how you place them in your hand, to the angle that you shake, the, the aggressiveness that you shake, how long you shake, the angle which you drop them, the angle they hit the table, are there imperfections in the table? God controls all of them. And he gets the outcome that he wants. Acts 126, they drew lots to determine who would be an apostle. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God determines what the lot will be. Even those events that you think are random and chance and that is beyond everyone's control, God controls those too. God causes weather, he causes planetary orbits, he causes the animals to eat, he causes the grass to grow. And yet science and your own logic and reasoning would say differently. If we're honest. We look at those events and we say, well, that can't be. Because if I'm trying to grow plants at the house, which I never do because I kill them, and I wanted to know why my plants always die, I can call a botanist. And the botanist can come over to my house and he can look at my plants and he can test the soils and he can look at my watering patterns and he can tell me the exact reason why my plants are dying. Or he can go over to your house and you have a green thumb and he can tell you exactly why your plants are thriving. I can go to a physicist and they'll explain why the sun rises every morning, why the planets orbit the sun the way they do. I can go to a meteorologist and they can explain why the rain falls. And they can give the exact hydraulic cycle, which I can't give you. And on occasion, they'll even be able to tell you kind of close, every now and then, when it's going to rain. That's, 
There's some footnotes on that one. So are these contradictory? Is God causing all these, or are the natural processes causing all of these? Divine concurrence says that God directs and works to bring about all events, but that he does so through those natural processes. God uses water, the sun's heat, and all those principles we were talking about earlier with rain to cause rain to fall on the just and the unjust. It's not a 50-50. What causes the rain? Well, the first cause is God. He's the primary cause. He's the one who decreed it, commanded it, energized it, made it happen. And then there's a second cause, natural elements. Now I'm going to get to the 50-50. This is not 50-50. It's not that God does 50% and the naturals the natural elements do 50%. If that was the case, then when the scientists try to explain why rain falls, they would only be able to tell you half of the story. They wouldn't be able to explain the full cycle. And they'd have to say, well, that's all we know for now. This other stuff, we don't know how it happens. It's 100%. God causes, and the natural elements also cause. Now, if you want to square that in your head and make that make sense, you need a better teacher than me because I can't even square that and get that to make sense. I just have to submit to what the Bible says. God causes all things to happen, and we understand that by understanding primary and secondary causes. Okay, well, this is dealing with just the natural world, but it also applies to nations. Job 12, 23, he makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, and then he leads them away. Well, don't, dis- don't nations make decisions for their own good that turn out for their good? And don't nations make decisions that turn out for their demise? Of course they do. But Job says all of those nations ultimately are controlled by God. And their beginning, their middle, and their end are determined, planned, and brought about by the providence of God. Acts 17.26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God appointed the time the U.S. would show up, he appointed the time the U.S. would fall, and he appointed our borders. Every nation that has ever existed, God has appointed its beginning, its end, and the borders of its habitation. He establishes them, he can destroy them, and he also rules over them. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight: For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar? God gave him all this glory and power and dominion. And he turned around and said, Look what I've done. And God rewarded him for his pride by turning him into an ox and making him eat grass for seven years. Daniel 9. Sorry, Daniel 9. Daniel 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth, this is Nebuchadnezzar, are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. God does whatever he pleases with the nations, just like he does with the natural world. God controls nations. He also controls your personal life. Matthew 6, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now, if you had breakfast this morning, 
an angel did not deliver it to you. Right? How does God provide you your daily bread? Does he do it by some miracle? Or does he do it by providing for you the means by which you can obtain bread? He gave you a job. He gave you a steady income. He's given you a home and pots and pans and all the things that you need to obtain food, to prepare that food, and to enjoy it. Philippians 4, Paul says God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Every need that you have on this earth that is being met, it's being met because God is sovereignly working that out and providing for it. He also controls your individual decisions. He provides for you food and all your necessities, but he also is involved in the decisions and the plans that you make. Jeremiah 10, 23, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. God controls even the steps a man takes. He works in that person through all the natural things of that person. He works through their desires, through their circumstances, through their family, through employment, the situation in the nation, in that city. And he uses all of those elements to direct that person where he wants them to go. Proverbs 20, verse 24, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? This is not saying that you should never plan for anything. This is not saying that you should never make plans for the future. Proverbs 16, verse 1, the plans of a heart, the plans of the heart belong to man. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. A few verses later, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You make plans, you make those plans according to your understanding and your desires and what you think is best, but in all of that, God is directing you to go in the path that he wants you to go. That should be a comfort. Because it means when you look back on your life, even the decisions you think were a horrible decision, and they may have been a horrible decision, it may have been sin, but as you look back, you can say, you know what, I know for certainty that is what God wanted. It was his ultimate plan for me even if I'm going to say I would never want to go back and do that again. Psalm 75. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He pulls down one and exalts another. That is to say, your plans are determined by God, and your success is determined by God whether you're successful in the adventure or whether you fail in it, is ultimately planned by him. Is that to say that you should never try hard? Is that to say you should just you know, be laissez-faire and I, I, I don't care anymore? No, because you're supposed to do all things for the glory of God. You're supposed to do it as though you are worshiping God in that act. But the ultimate end of whatever you're doing is determined by him. And he energizes and makes it happen. Okay, so have we all seen that God controls everything? Everything in the universe is under God's control. And he uses secondary means in the creation to bring about his desires. And that brings us to divine governance. And again, divine governance is going to be 
just the second side of concurrence. That is, he works all of this out for one reason. To accomplish his will. He rules over the creation to accomplish his will. Wayne Grudem said, God has a purpose in all that he does in the world, and he providentially governs or directs all things in order that they accomplish his purposes. God sovereignly rules for one reason, so that what he desires comes about. Preservation and divine concurrence both lead right here. God rules over the heaven and the earth, and there's nothing that can stop him. There's nothing that can prevent him. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. The Bible sure likes to use that word all, doesn't it? Everything is under his control. Everything is under his rule. 1 Corinthians 15, 27, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Everything is in subjection to him. Even those rebellious atheists who deny they're in subjection to him, they're still in subjection to him. He's still working and controlling through them. Ephesians 1, we looked at this verse earlier. Who works all things after the counsel of his will. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The ultimate goal of all things is that Christ would be glorified, that people would bow down and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is working all things out so that in the end, every single person, even the atheist, will bow the knee and worship Christ. That's divine governance. I don't think we really need to hit that real hard because we've kind of been talking about it all morning. All right, questions or comments so far? I've been going for like 50 minutes now. All right, nothing. So what about evil? There's a couple truths as we think about evil. There's a couple things we need to keep in mind. Okay, There are three big truths that are applicable here. Um, the first, Scripture affirms that God controls everything. We just saw that. We've spent 50 minutes talking about God is in control of everything. And there's no place in Scripture for us to separate out and say, well, he's in control of this, but not this over here. People want to say, well, that tornado that came through and killed all those people, that wasn't God. God had no part of that. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says he's in control of everything. Scriptures declare that God is holy and never sins. I'm going to give you the full slide here. He is holy, never sins. Which means anything we say about God controlling and working through the world, we cannot deny that he is in control of all things and that he is holy and he's never responsible for sin. We have to affirm both those truths. And finally, Scripture and our experience prove that there is evil in the world. These three things are true. And whatever conclusion you reach about divine providence and the problem of evil, whatever conclusion you get to, you have to be able to consistently affirm these truths. And if you can't consistently affirm all three of these, you're denying what Scripture says. You have not come to the truth. And that's where the problem of evil is. 
How can you consistently hold to all three of these? You guys see the problem? If God controls all things and there's evil in the world, how can God be holy? If God is holy and he controls all things, how can there be sin? But scripture does say that God is behind even things that we would say are evil. Amos 3.6, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? And people say, well, that's not very encouraging. It is if you're someone who's suffering as a result of that calamity. And you believe that God is in control of all things and he is going to work all things out for his will and for your good. That's very encouraging. What's really discouraging is telling someone God had no part of that. That's outside of God's control. Isaiah 14, verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, it will stand. What was his plan? What plan is he referring to here? Very next verse. To break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains. Then this yoke will be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulders. God's going to bring judgment on Assyria. And destroy them. That's what he planned. Now if you ask the Assyrians. They would say that's pretty evil. Isaiah 14 verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has planned. And who can frustrate it. And as far as for his stretched out hand. Who can turn it back. This was God's plan. And you're not going to stop it. You're not going to prevent him from carrying it out. These passages all speak about God bringing judgment on sinful creatures. And so in that sense, we can understand what we would say is either moral or natural evil. In this context, it's not evil, it's God's judgment. His righteous judgment on sinners. Okay. But what about when we're talking about what we would say is moral evil? Doing something evil to someone who didn't do anything. This is just moral evil. This is just wrong. You shouldn't do this. Another slide where you're going to see the whole thing up front. Speaking of Joseph, his brothers were jealous of him. They hated him. They wanted to murder him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. Every single one of those is against the moral law of God. All of them. Selling him into slavery, kidnapping and selling someone into slavery was punishable by death. And yet God takes credit for it. And says all of these things he used, why? Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. In the selling of Joseph and slavery, God was working to send Joseph to Egypt. So that he could preserve life. All of those are moral evils. God is still holy. But God was behind it. Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result. To preserve many people alive. That's the famous verse that everybody knows. God is also said to raise up evil against David as a punishment for his sin. 2 Samuel 12, 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. All the things that happened in David's family that were all moral evil, all of them were used by God as a judgment on David. David later conducted a census when he was told not to. Remember how he described it? 2 Samuel 24, verse 10. Now David's heart was troubled, uh, heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. I have sinned, I have been foolish. David takes full responsibility. He doesn't blame God for it. He doesn't say God's at fault. It's all David's fault. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, just nine verses earlier. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. God incited David, allured him, provoked him to go do this. Did David blame God for it? No. David blamed himself. He was responsible for it. First Chronicles 21, verse 1, tells us how God incited David. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. God used Satan to accomplish his will. God is holy. God controls all things. Isaiah 45, verse 7. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The term here, create, is the Hebrew word bara. It's the same word used in Genesis 1. The word here for calamity several times is translated as evil. Again, God is holy. We have to affirm it. But we also have to affirm that God is the primary cause behind all events. The prophet Jeremiah, Lamentations 3, verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Is it not that God has commanded these things to occur? In all of these things, God brings what we would say is evil upon who? Innocent pure victims. He brings evil upon wicked, sinful men. Sinners deserving His wrath. And yet in all of it, Scripture says that God is perfectly holy, undefiled, perfectly pure. Isaiah 6, 1 John 1, He is light and in Him there is no darkness. And whatever you think about these events that you might say, well, these are horrible things to do. How could he do this? God could never be responsible for this. I cannot believe that a sovereign, holy God would do this to sinners. Just wait till you get to the New Testament. Because he does an act that is even more heinous. That is truly evil. It was an evil act perpetrated against the only sinless being to ever walk the planet. 
Acts chapter 2, this man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Who planned it? Who purposed it? And who's held responsible for it? Is God held responsible? Well, in one sense, he planned and purposed it and caused it, he brought it about. In another sense, they're held responsible for the moral evil. Acts 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to do, or predestined to occur. God controls all things. All things include those things we would say are evil. But God is never responsible for that evil. We are. And again, I would tell you that I've resolved this problem and I can make this make perfect sense to you, but I can't. I just have to submit to what Scripture says. And those three things are true. He controls all things, he's holy, and there is evil in the world. If you have any questions, feel free to see me afterwards, okay? Let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy in this time that we have together. Uh, as we go into our worship, Lord, would you just cut out the distractions of this world and help us to focus on Christ, to set our minds and our hearts upon him and upon you, uh, that we could be transformed through your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.